Welcome to the eighth episode of our Think Differently and Deeply podcast series. My name is Glenn Whitman, and I direct the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School. This series features authors from Volume 3 of the CTTL's internationally recognized publication, Think Differently and Deeply, which has been distributed to over 10,000 teachers, school leaders, and policymakers worldwide. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Karen Kaufman. Karen is the head of the math department at St. Andrews and currently teaches Algebra 1, 2, and Pre-Calculus. In her article, The Science of Forgetting and the Art of Remembering, Karen gives us a glimpse into how she reimagined her approach to preparing students for the final exam using mind, brain, and education science research-backed memory strategies, particularly the spacing effect and interleaving. Karen recently shared her work at the Research Ed Conference in Philadelphia, and now will share her thinking and writing for us today. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Glenn. Happy to be here. Awesome. So my first question is a little historical question. Um, You've now been at school or at St. Andrews for 14 years. Um, How has your thinking in general about teaching and learning changed by your training in mind-brain education science and your connection of being a faculty member with a school that has a CTTL? I think that when I first started teaching here, I was letting the textbooks and the resources we had direct the flow of our course. It's how teachers had done it in the past. If they said to go in a linear progression of topic one, topic two, that's how I approached things. And I didn't really think about the fact that we could break away from that traditional model and deconstruct our curriculum to better meet the needs of our students. So I would say that the way it has changed is that we no longer let the resources and the textbooks drive the direction of our courses. You know, you made an interesting point of feeling the stress of being able to or not being able to break away from what has been considered traditional teaching. When did you get that confidence to do it? What gave you that confidence? Uh... I think that sort of leads a little bit into the article you mentioned And my article was specifically about the frustration that happened at the end of the school year, many school years early in my teaching, both for me and for my students, mostly for my students, where they would get to the end of a year and express their frustration in not being able to recall and apply what they had learned earlier. And of course, their frustration ended up being my frustration where I felt at that point late in the year where we, I had to step back and almost push a curriculum at them to prepare them for a test, and it just didn't feel like good teaching. And that was something that my colleagues and I spoke at great length about, but I don't know that any of us were at a point before our work with the CTTL with brain research to say, wait a minute, we don't have to do it this way just because we've been doing it this way before. Great. Great. Before we jump a little more deeply into the article itself, why does memory matter in math? I love that you asked me that question (laughs) because for some reason this morning, driving into work, I started thinking about the way we've resequenced our courses and the spacing that I know we'll get into and talk about. And I was, and I asked myself the same question. Why is that so important? And I think anyone will agree that one of the biggest hurdles students have in math is overcoming their fear, is being willing to struggle, being willing to get stuck. I think students are more apt to do that if they have a really solid foundation 
in numeracy, in basic proportional reasoning, that gives them the launch board where they then feel comfortable moving further. And I was actually thinking, the reason I was thinking about it while driving is because I was thinking, I moved recently. And when I moved, I realized I had to find a new way to take back roads to get to work. And the first probably 10 or 20 times I came to work, I took those exact roads. I wouldn't diverge at all from it. I wouldn't try anything new or try going a new way. And it wasn't until I was really comfortable with that route that I started giving myself permission. Maybe test new ways to make connections to, oh, wait, I I saw that street when I used to drive here or there. And I think it's the same thing with math, that once a student has seen a concept over and over again, or they're really solid in something, that's when they'll begin to give themselves the permission to experiment and be a little bit more playful. No, makes makes sense. I guess that's a, a driver's growth mindset, I would <laughs> gather, a, right? It's a driver's growth mindset. <laughs> if, that's, if, that, if that works. I don't know if uh, Carol Dweck really appreciates the extent we think about her work. Um, <laughs> speaking of yet, for the audience that might not yet have read your article, uh, you talk in the title about the science of forgetting and the art of remembering. And, I, and it sort of got me to thinking as I was organizing some questions, how do you see your teaching or the teaching of maths um, as both an art and a science? Yeah, so these, this was a softball question, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard one. So in my article, I talk about retention and students being able to learn in math as being twofold. The strength or the durability of the memory is more the art piece because it's helping students to make connections. It's providing novelty. But then much of what we've learned, both through experience and through our work in brain research, is the importance of things like spaced repetitions, how we purposefully place the most important content at the beginning and end of class because we know students best learn during those times. So there's the science piece. When I walk by your classroom and, and, you know, it's been redesigned a little this year because of our thinking also about space, I often see you sitting in the corner on, looks like couches, and it looks like it's, it's much about relationship cultivation as much as teaching about a math problem or talking about memory. And I, th- I feel like it's a part of the DNA of a lot of our faculty, relationships. Why do you see relationships as important as content? Oh, the, the relationship piece, I think, is probably the most important piece to me. And I guess that is the piece that's art. But um, students won't trust me with a topic as scary to some people as math if we don't have that relationship. And I really try to spend time in the classroom every day. You know, we we talk about things other than math and math. (laughs) I tell stories about myself. I let them see me make mistakes. We have a running joke that my mental math completely disappears every time I have to stand at the board and I have to do a multiplication or division or addition or subtraction in my head. And sometimes the kids will say, it's okay, Ms. Kaufman, you got this. So um, I think Letting them see us being human and building those relationships is a critical part of what we, Absolutely. What we do every day. So let's get into the article. In your article, you really focus around uh, the final exam, which is a stressful situation for students. It's a big summative assessment of maybe a, a year's worth of work or a semester's worth of work. Talk about how you tried to prepare students better for the summative assessment, the final exam, by thinking about memory throughout the school year. 
Well, my article was a little bit about Ebbinghaus and the idea of the forgetting curve and the fact that any learned material is going to be lost within hours or days of learning it. There's a steep decline in the early moments unless it's repeated. And it's almost funny that I've known of this study for a long time, and all of us in math have, yet it seemed to surprise us when students got to the final exam and didn't remember what we had taught them in September. And I don't know why, now looking back, why that was a revolutionary (laughs) idea to us. It just makes perfect sense. Sure. (laughs) Um, The problem was we all looked at the old traditional way of having to cover a certain amount of content and couldn't figure out how we could keep providing that repetition of prior content while moving forward. So we started giving ourselves permission to really deconstruct our curriculum. So it was a combination of curriculum and homework practice. In terms of deconstructing the curriculum, we purposefully took apart all the topics we taught in a particular class And we looked at perhaps not going as deeply the first time we presented it, moving on to the next topic, connecting those two, and coming back to it later on. So there's a purposeful deconstruction of the curriculum itself. So we know that, for example, students are exposed to exponents two, three, or four times in the curriculum itself or exposed to polynomials. But then we took it uh, much further in that we no longer teach a topic and give homework on that topic. And that was the piece that was very, very hard for us as we approached this. To be honest, the first year, we kept falling back into old habits. We would say, okay, we're going to start the year, and right from the beginning, we're going to give a weekly homework assignment that's review of prior topics. And that review will keep growing through the year as we introduce new topics. But then what would happen was we'd get closer to an exam And we'd say, wait, we need to find a way to get the kids ready for that exam. That was kind of the early evolution. Since then, we've gotten much better at giving ourselves permission for all of our homework to be review. Yep. So let's talk a little bit more about this. I think the audience, one, really appreciated the concrete example of what you're doing differently with spacing and interleaving. A lot of teachers see the Ebbinghaus curve and just, what do I do with this thing? My question was, what was the student's reaction to what was a different math homework experience and forcing them not to forget where they've been as you continue to move forward in the studies? The first year, the students hated it. (laughs) I'm sure. With a burning passion. We, by the way, we called these um, homework assignments our P-cubed assignments. And at the time, we were trying it in pre-calculus. It was, so it was pre-calculus practice packet, which is why we called it P-cubed. They kept saying to us, well, how are we expected to have enough practice on current material if we're always in review mode? And we explained to them that we were building in that practice in class. Um, somewhere mid-year... They stopped hating it and started buying into it. And the reason being that they were finding they were still having success on our actual tests and quizzes, even without doing this nightly crank of homework. As we started talking more about what we expected them to know at the end of the year, I think they were starting to believe, wow, I'm, I'm pretty solid in what I need to know for the course. Right. I will say as we got close to the final exam, 
and they looked over what was expected of them, many of them had just this incredible moment where they said, we know this. You know, we, we've got this. As a matter of fact, some of them said, is this really all that's on the final exam? Thinking that we weren't putting on what we had prior and we had to explain to them, you know, you've seen some of these topics 15 and 20 times. Right. So it makes sense that you really are getting it. And that was a great moment for all of us. You know, uh, that, is a, that is a great story, right? It's, it's better than saying you've never taught us this or we've never learned this or what is this? You know, in the end of your article, right around the time you share that story, you also have this observation that the students feel a little less stressed around either preparing or taking the final exam. And as a school, we continue to strive to be a, a challenging and rigorous school with a high-quality academic program for all kids, but also to take care of the well-being. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what this process, leveraging, spacing, and interleaving, might be doing for kids' stress as it comes to a, a summative assessment like a final exam? I, now having done this um, two years well, the stress level, you can't compare it. They receive a final exam review packet, and any math teacher will say, normally you hand out the final exam review packet, and kids will immediately look at it and say, they don't even recall learning some of what's in the packet, or I may have seen it before, but I have no idea how to approach it. And I, I really do think we've made great strides in not only them feeling better about their current exam, which is important, the final exam, but also in seeing the connections between their math courses, knowing that math is one of our only subjects that fully necessitates you building on a prior year. Sure. So what we now have for each of our courses is a list of what we expect students to know going into the next course. And that list also helps students drive what type of summer review they're going to do. They know they're no longer going to get into our courses and spend the first three months doing review. <laughs> and we, we don't do that now. When we say to them, we expect you to have this level of knowledge on a certain topic, um, they need to hit the ground running. They will see it in these weekly review sheets, but they're not going to be retaught content from other years. So it's kind of helped them understand what's expected of them at each level in math. A great success and a testament to, in my mind, you're a great model for a professional growth mindset. You know, you're doing something differently in your 14th year at St. Andrews than you did in your first, I'm assuming. I'm sure you're doing many things differently. Where does a teacher like you cultivate your own growth mindset to be better for your kids, to use research to inform your practice. Um, I think it's a good model to remind us we got to continue to strive to get better. But you have a growth mindset. Where does that come from? Oh, gosh. I, th <laughs> I think that the uh, CTTL requires oh, us oh to. I think it's, it might be in my <laughs> well contract. Played. Well played. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to say like your grandmother or... No. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, all of it, many teachers could say we're all perfectionists and we want, you know, we're constantly trying to get better. But I think this school in general has pushed us to continue to try to better ourselves. We're, we never get to a point where we say, okay, we're teaching this just the way it should be taught now. None of us are going to ever get to that point. And that's what makes teaching here exciting. I think it's been exciting to see the whole department start buying into and adopting this philosophy. We really now can say virtually in all of our middle school through 12th grade courses 
that we are doing things differently. We are, we have all deconstructed our curriculum. We are all including this type of interleaving and spaced review throughout our math courses, and we're all starting to see results from it. So that's that's the exciting piece. So that, that last comment, I'm thinking like, well, how'd you do it, right? So you as an individual teacher, you know, have the latitude and the autonomy to try things, and you've taken research and tried. But you're also a leader of a department, and a, a department that has very veteran teachers. But you just told me there's a lot of buy-in and a lot of, a lot of teachers are in this space. How do you move your department to embrace this idea of spacing and interleaving these last few years? I, I really think that goes back to what we talked about it at the beginning of this talk today, which is that all of our math teachers saw this need. I mean, we have continually been looking at how we can help our students to better retain and really to better learn, not just to memorize math for the sake of memorizing math, but to understand the connections in math. So I think many of us were very open to trying this. So when a couple of us tried it and had success, it was really kind of easy. And we've we've had some fun with it. Um, I think I told you we have our weekly assignments in Algebra 1 are called um, A... No, pre-algebra is A squared. Ah. Um, algebra 2 is A cubed, which is acquiring algebraic acumen. And we have, so we've had some playfulness, and the kids have their A squareds and A cubes and P squareds and P cubes. And right. I guess we have um, to trademark these. Yeah. Right? yeah we, um, so I, I don't know, we've had some fun with it, and we're seeing results. What's the A squared? A squared. You got me the A cube. I'm, I got the P I cube. I know, I know. I need to get all of them oh, for see, you. See, this is a memory. Yeah. This is, uh, we it's haven't done enough space issue. in our interleaving <laughs> with you on this. Uh, That's it. All right. Well, you'll get back to us. Um, I will. Um, so uh, I think I got like two more questions for you. One is, you know, you have implemented this at a time when we have a, 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 a new daily schedule. And I'm just curious how that has or has not factored into it. In an earlier podcast, uh, Ian Keller and um, Judy Key, who wrote an article for Think Differently Deeply, talked about the New Daily schedule and their work with it. I'm curious, is the, the spaces, the longer periods, has that impacted your thinking about this at all, or uh, am I reaching here? No. I, well, a couple of things. One is I love the 65-minute period in general because it allows it for me I think for many math teachers it allows us to be better teachers we can start off um, with a little bit of testing where the students were at the end of class yesterday doing our warm-up doing some kind of quick lesson having time to practice in class which was what was critical for us especially with the fact that we're not giving this daily homework practice, and then still having time to do that kind of exit ticket, whatever it is, at the end of each class. And I think all of us are enjoying doing that better. And then I think seeing the students for three times a week, which is what all of us are doing for these 65-minute periods, to me lends itself really well to these weekly homework assignments, to not having daily homework. So I love the fact that in our math classes – you know, at either the first time we see a student during the week or in the last time, we're handing them this weekly homework that they then need to do a little bit of time management to mm -hmm. keep on top of it, to get their practice during the week. And I, I think it lends itself really well Great. versus teaching a topic and giving daily homework. Great. So it was funny, um, as we were 
sort of warming up for this podcast, you had mentioned this might be more nerve-wracking than what you've done uh, in November, which was present at Research Ed, a, a conference that gathers uh, teachers and school leaders and researchers uh, who are trying to connect the science of learning to everyday school life. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what was that experience like for you? You and a colleague, John McMillan, a veteran of St. Andrews, uh, what was that like for you to share your thinking about memory with external people from the school? I'm, I'm, it was wonderful. It was a great experience. And as you can probably tell, I'm really very excited and um, would love to hear more from people who try doing this type of review in a math classroom um, and see if it addresses some of the concerns that math, I mean, math teachers have had since the beginning of time, which is how do we get our kids not to just memorize and know it for a test, but to really learn and understand math, to internalize it so that we then hopefully can move to a place where we're better problem solvers, (laughs) where we can be more playful. So I, the research ed conference was great. It was exciting. I think people were very receptive to hearing about it. And um, I'm excited by it and hope to have a chance to talk to more people about it. And, you know, on the bus ride home, you became uh, a member of Twitter. I did. So you can follow and I have followers. Uh, Karen Kaufman <laughs> on Twitter. And there's a little competition just for the audience out there between John and Karen uh, on their um, Twitter numbers. To, to finish off, um, you quickly after the article said, you know, you, you're looking forward to writing part two. Um, so what are some of the next steps? Uh, you know, we talk a lot about the CD about measuring. Is this working? Is this not working? And certainly we have anecdotal and observational data, but what are you going to do between now and when I come find you and say, Hey, it's time to write part two for this article. You're going to be a veteran podcaster so we can do it again. And this would be like a piece of cake. Okay. Um, (laughs) what we need to do is really to have, is, talk more amongst ourselves in the department and to collect data about whether students really are arriving to the next course with a more solid knowledge than they had in prior years. And that's a little bit soft. I don't think there's really hard data we can pull on it, but I think as we all make a commitment to this type of review and spaced repetition, I I expect that we will see students coming into pre-calculus with more solid Algebra two knowledge and people coming into calculus with a really good grasp of what pre-calculus is. So we're starting to see that. I think teachers are starting to see they don't need the first three months of each school year to review. Um, so I think the answer is we need to collect data and really see if it's working. Well, I know I look forward to seeing what that article looks like and being back at this table. Uh, we are sitting in the CTTL conference room right now. We're freezing, actually, just in case the audience wants to know. Um, so uh, I, I, we're done. Uh, I want to thank you, one, for taking this leap around memory research. Karen, thank you. It's a, you, you know uh, that I hold you in high esteem and, and you and, and your colleagues for looking at memory and looking at homework very differently. And, and again, in the end, if our kids are feeling less stressed, equally challenged, and even are more successful in learning math and retaining math, and then we're on to something. So thank you very much. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Nice All to right. talk to you. Take care. At St. Andrews, we often end our classes with some form of exit ticket or active retrieval of information that was a focal point of the day's class. We know from mind, brain, and education research that if students don't start recalling or using their learning, they are bound to forget it. So in that research-informed spirit, here is your exit ticket. If you are a teacher, 
how might you incorporate interleaving in your homework planning? And if you're a parent, how have you experienced interleaving in your adult learning or your professional life? Tweet your response to at the CTTL. We look forward to seeing what you come up with. The Think Differently and Deeply podcast is a production of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Potomac, Maryland, where the mission is to know and inspire each child in an inclusive community dedicated to exceptional teaching, learning, and service. Each podcast is produced by Kirsten Peterson and mixed by Jordan Yance. Jordan also composed our theme music, which we lovingly call the Growth Mindset. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and more. And while you're there, leave us a review. This act of reflection will embed what you've learned from this podcast into your long-term memory.